Thank you, guys. That's wonderful. Good morning, everyone. It's great to see you. So this is um, week six of our teaching series entitled Living Church, as you can see from the screen. And we like to begin each new year with a teaching series that reminds us of who we are as a church and as the people of God. And if you're here this morning and you're not uh, a Christian, this is a great series for you because you get the inside track before you sign up. You get to find out what this church thing is really all about, um, what's going on behind the scenes, so to speak. Um, And if you're here this morning and you're a new Christian, this is a really good series for you as well because you get to find out what's next. You might have decided that you like Jesus, you know he died for your sins, you're, you're on board with that, but what are you doing in this strange shaped building with all of these weirdos? Well, that's what the, the series is about. To offend everyone equally and then we can move forward. Um, and if you're here this morning and you've been a Christian since 1926, um, then this is a really good series for you as well. Because sometimes we can get into the habit of going to church, singing the songs, sitting in the same space, pretending to listen to the sermon, getting out quickly to get the biscuits. I know who you are. I see all from up here. (coughs) We get into the habit of going, you know, but we forget why we're here in the first place. It's like, you know, we look the part, but somewhere along the way we've lost the heart. And in the book of Revelation, Jesus warns the church in Sardis, I know your deeds, you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. You look the part, but you've lost the heart. And we don't want that to be said of us. So that's what we're doing in this series, and that's what we're doing this morning. And hopefully now you're all on board. Um, So let's dive in. This morning we're going to be looking at and thinking about ministry. Ministry. I'm not sure what comes to your mind when you see the word ministry. Perhaps if you're particularly cool here this morning, you might think of Ministry of Sound. You know those dance albums that they release every year. I'm sure some of you have got one in your collection as a testament to your youth. No? Or maybe if you're like me, you might think of the uh, Ministry of Cake. (laughs) You didn't know there was a Ministry of Cake, did you? This is the UK's leading manufacturer in hand-finished cakes. And um, sorry if I've made you hungry this morning with that, that photo. Um, maybe you think of pastors and vicars, people that are going into the ministry, so to speak. Obviously, that's not a real uh, vicar there. Well, I'm not going to talk about any of those things this morning. What I want to explore with you this morning is the biblical definition of ministry. What is ministry as we find it in the Bible and what did it look like for the early church? And to do that I want us to return to the book of Acts. We've spent quite a bit of time in Acts through this series so far and we've been um, camping out particularly in Acts chapter 2 and have been particularly focused on the last few verses of the chapter. I'll just remind you of what they say. Chapter 2 Verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions and gave to anyone who had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favour of all the people. 
and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And what we have here is a, a description written by Luke. Luke is the guy who wrote Acts of what the church looked like in the first few weeks and months of its life. And we've been suggesting through this series that we, we find some of the key components of a living church in these verses. So we've talked about worship, we've talked about community, we've talked about discipleship, all of which can be seen here. And of course this all came about because Peter and the apostles were bold in their evangelism, which is what we looked at last week. And it's an amazing picture. You know, I read these verses and I think, gosh, wow, you know, I'd, I'd have loved to have been a part of the church back then. Doesn't it sound like, you know, God was really moving, like there was some wonderful things going on in this community. And I'm sure it was wonderful. But we need to remember that this is, isn't the whole picture. The church, the early church, was not without its challenges. The church has never um, been perfect. In fact, there have been many times in history where the church has been wrong, where it's needed correction and reformation because it's filled with imperfect people. People that are trying to live like Jesus, to be his hands and feet, but make mistakes. People like me and like you. And in fact, you know, the Apostle Paul wrote most of the New Testament exactly because the church was imperfect. He knew it needed guidance and correction just as we do today. And we do see this in Acts as well. When we read beyond chapter 2, Luke begins to describe some of the challenges that the early church was facing. So this morning I want to share with you one of those challenges in particular. And it's found in Acts chapter 6. So if you have your Bibles, um, leaf your way there. And while you're finding Acts chapter 6, let me just very quickly fill you in on some of the key events between chapter 2 and chapter 6, just to set the scene for you. So we know in chapter 2, 3,000 people came to faith. By the time we reach chapter 4, another 2,000 have been added to that number, 5,000 in total. And this came about because Peter and John healed a man who was crippled um, and begging in the temple courts, and, and, and it drew a crowd, and they told them about Jesus. But as they were speaking of Jesus, Peter and John were arrested by the temple guard. Now these were the same people that had very recently crucified Jesus. So this was bad news. They probably felt that this was the end for them. They were threatened. They were told to stop speaking about Jesus, but they were released. And when they went back to the other believers, they prayed this incredible prayer. They said, Lord, consider their threats. Consider the danger we're in. Look at how difficult this is for us and enable us to continue to speak your word with great boldness. They saw that God was at work. They saw that God was changing lives. And they said, we don't want to stop. So no matter what we're facing, let us keep speaking for you. And that's what they did. And the church, it continues to grow. And at the end of chapter 4, Luke tells us that from time to time, those who own land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. So as the church grows and lives are transformed, people become generous, really generous in fact, and they make their wealth available to the apostles. And what do the apostles do with it? Well, they do exactly what Jesus told them to do. They use it to look after those less fortunate than themselves, those who had need, the poor and the sick amongst them, which in their case was the widows and orphans. And so this is where we find the church is in chapter 6. It's grown despite attacks from the outside. It's funded 
by its members' generosity, and it's beginning to impact the world around itself. It's beginning to make a real difference to the world, to help those who are poor and sick and in need. And this is how chapter 6 begins. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the disciples are increasing, but now the church is facing a different kind of challenge. Not an attack from the outside, but a a complaint from within. It's the Hellenists versus the Hebrews. (coughs) Now they were both Jewish. They had both embraced the message of Jesus, so they were Jesus' followers. Um, But they were from slightly different backgrounds. So the Hebrews were those that wholeheartedly embraced Jewish culture and Jewish language, most likely from the region of Judea, whereas the Hellenists were much more likely to embrace Greek culture and Greek language, and they were kind of from all over. And so the Hebrews thought the Hellenists were these unspiritual compromisers, whereas the Hellenists thought the Hebrews were these holier-than-thou traditionalists. So there's this kind of underlying tension between these two groups. But now some of the Hellenistic Jews have come to believe that their widows are not being as treated as well as the Hebraic widows by the church. So they're not happy. They're grumbling, they're complaining, and this could be tricky for the church. This has the potential to really upset the apple cart. And the apostles become aware of the situation, and so they call a church meeting, which we read about in verse 2. It says, So the twelve gathered all the disciples together, and said it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. In other words, we're not going to sort this out for you. Verse 3. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom, and we will turn this responsibility over to them, and we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed for them and laid hands on them. So the apostles, they recognise there's this problem, this issue in the church, but they also see the danger in trying to resolve it themselves. And it isn't that the distribution of food was somehow beneath them or below their station. I mean, how could it be? Jesus himself had told them to serve one another, to perform the acts of a servant. He demonstrated it powerfully when he had washed their feet not too long ago. But they had the wisdom to know that if they took the responsibility for the food distribution, they would be neglecting the specific call that God had placed on their lives to teach the word. And the church would suffer. And so they call everyone together and they say, choose, choose seven people. Why seven? Well, seven days of the week. Maybe it was one per day. Maybe there was just a lot to do and they needed seven people. We don't know. But they're chosen. The apostles pray for them. And off they go, disaster averted. A, a seemingly happy ending. But why has Luke included this story for us? Well, I think actually we can find out quite a lot about the nature of ministry from this story. So let me unpack it a little bit for you this morning. The first thing 
that we see in this story is that there is a variety of ministry that exists within the church. In the passage, when the apostles say it's not right for us to wait on tables, the word that Luke uses in the original Greek is the word diakoneia. And it's exactly the same word that is later translated as ministry in verse 4, when the apostles say we'll give our attention to the ministry of the word. So something slightly lost in our translation there, in reality, feeding the poor and speaking the word were both forms of ministry within the church. And actually the Greek word diakoneia, it simply means service, to serve. So in biblical terms, ministry and service are synonyms. They mean the same thing. Whenever you read about serving God or serving the church, it's speaking about ministry. And so ministry isn't this special role that's reserved for certain individuals, but it's an expectation that's placed on all believers. We are all called to serve. Secondly, we see that one ministry is not greater than another. They are all essential for the church to flourish. The apostles understood that they needed to focus on the ministry of the word, but they weren't prepared for the ministry of feeding the poor to be neglected. And they didn't try and brush the issue under the carpet. They took steps to deal with it. And, you know, it's further evidenced by the way in which the apostles commissioned the seven to do the job. They didn't just say, all right, thanks for stepping up, lads. Here's an apron. There's the food. Off you go. Crack on. We've got more important work to do. No, they lay hands on them. They pray for them. They commission them to do this important work of the gospel. You go and make sure no one is missed. This really mattered. And maybe they thought about it this way. You see, the power of Jesus to change lives was being evidenced by the way the church was meeting the needs of the community. And so the effectiveness of the disciples' message was directly linked to this work. In other words, how could they continue to say, Jesus tells us to feed the poor, if no one in the church was feeding the poor? The gospel wasn't just words. It was whole life transformation. One of the reasons I absolutely love being a part of this church and serving in this church is that I get to witness that day to day. I see people in the coffee shop who are giving up their time to serve drinks and cake and be a listening ear to people that need someone to listen to them. I see people carrying ridiculous amounts of tinned food in and out of food bank to make sure that people are fed. I see people getting up at stupid hours in the morning to make breakfast for homeless people in our town. I know some of you give up your Friday nights to spend time with children and teenagers from the community who don't know that Jesus loves them. And I know some of you will go and visit those who are home bound or sick or in a hospital and every single one of those things is as important as me or Steve standing up here and speaking to you on a Sunday morning. Isn't that right Steve? Every single one. Every act of service matters to God. Paul writes in Colossians 3.23, whatever, whatever you do, Work at it with your heart as working for the Lord and not human masters. Since you know you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ that you are serving. Echoing Jesus' words when he says, I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did it for me. Every act of service matters to God. 
The third thing I think we see in this story is that we are all called to some form of ministry. The disciples, they had a clear understanding of their role in the church, and there were two reasons for this. Firstly, um, Jesus had told them what it was going to be, which is nice and easy. He said in Acts chapter 1, wait for the Holy Spirit, and when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and to the ends of the earth. So they knew that their prime responsibility was to tell people about Jesus. But secondly, they saw evidence of that calling in their lives. So we, when they spoke up for Jesus, they see 3,000 people come into faith, then 2,000, and then more and more and more. And so when they're faced with this issue, they know that they need to find somebody else whose calling it is to feed the poor and ensure that the food is distributed fairly. <clears throat> Now later on, the Apostle Paul spends quite a bit of time unpacking this for the churches in his letters. Um, His letter to the Corinthians, first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 12, is a particularly good chapter to read in understanding how ministry works within the church. He writes in verse 12 of chapter 12, The human body has many parts, but the many parts make up the whole body, and so it is with the body of Christ. In other words, we all have a specific function or a specific ministry to fulfill within the church. So how do we know what our ministry is? Christian author um, and pastor Rick Warren in his book The Purpose Driven Life, which is a brilliant book if you haven't read it, I suggest you do, um, he gives us a very helpful way of thinking about this. He suggests that we all have a unique shape. I don't know how you feel about your shape. I wish mine was a little less spherical perhaps a bit firmer in the middle, Um, but really that's up to me, isn't it, to do something about it. Um, But in this analogy, sorry, getting off topic, um, SHAPE is an acronym, and this is what it stands for. It stands for spiritual gifts, heart, abilities, personality, and experience. So let me just talk through these for a few minutes. The S is spiritual gifts. So these are God-given abilities, things that are given to us through the Holy Spirit, things that we couldn't do before. So in the Apostles' case, when the Holy Spirit comes in Acts 2, they couldn't have convinced thousands of people to follow Jesus. In fact, if you read Luke 22, you see that Peter was afraid to talk about Jesus even in front of a small girl um, until we get to Acts chapter 2 and the Holy Spirit arrives and gives them the gift of evangelism. There are many other gifts that are mentioned in the Bible, things like healing, prophecy, leadership, teaching, administration, wisdom, words of knowledge, and more. And if we return again to 1 Corinthians 12, Paul talks about these gifts in the church. He says there are different kinds of gifts, but the same spirit that distributes them. There are different kinds of service or ministry, remember their synonyms, but the same Lord. We all have different gifts. And what's really interesting about spiritual gifts is that often we don't know what it is that we've been given until we begin to serve. I am utterly convinced that the disciples, the apostles, were just as surprised when people were listening to them and coming to faith on that first day as anybody else was. So what spiritual gifts have you been given? Do you know? Have you ever been praying for someone and the Holy Spirit given you a word or a picture for them? Were you bold enough to share it with them? Have you ever prayed for healing and seen something happen? I know many of you have been given the the wonderful gift of encouragement. I know that because you've encouraged me. Thank you for that. 
What about on a Sunday morning? Has the Holy Spirit ever prompted you to share a word or a scripture with the church? When he does, I would ask you to come and speak to me and Steve so you can share it or we can share it on your behalf because we're really open to that here. You know, Paul continues, to each one a manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. These gifts are meant to be shared. They're to encourage the whole body of Christ. Perhaps you're not sure what spiritual gifts you have been given. That's okay. My advice is twofold. Firstly, pray. Paul says that we're to eagerly desire these gifts. And Jesus says that God gives good gifts to those who ask him. So why not give it a go? Next time you're praying for someone, ask God to give you a word or a picture for them. Ask for boldness in sharing the gospel like Peter and John did and then do it and see what happens. Why not pray for wisdom for someone that you know is struggling and then spend some time with them? You know, you might be surprised how God uses you when you are open to being used by him. Secondly, if you're not sure, ask someone that you trust if they've noticed any particular gifts in you, because chances are they have. And very often we don't notice the ways in which God uses us as a part of the church. And it's not until we speak to somebody else that we think, oh yeah, yeah, I have been doing that. And they can shed some light on it for us. <coughs> Moving on, the H stands for heart. Our heart is our source of um, our motivation. Something really interesting, again, about this story in Acts 6. It's the Hellenistic Jews that are complaining that their widows are being missed. Now, if we put aside the fact for a moment that they were grumbling and think about why they were complaining, they had noticed a need within their society that wasn't being met by the church. And it burdened them. They saw an injustice amongst them and they spoke about it. They raised the issue. Maybe they didn't raise it in the right way, but they raised it nonetheless so that the apostles did something about it. And the interesting thing is that the seven men that were found to do the job, they all have Greek-sounding names. I'm not going to read them again because I probably read them wrong the first time and you didn't notice, so I'm going to move on. But it's likely that they were Hellenistic Jews. Now, I don't know if any of those that were chosen were the same ones that were grumbling. Maybe they were, maybe they weren't. Luke doesn't particularly tell us. But I do believe that sometimes God burdens our heart with something because he wants us to do something about it. Yeah? There is such a thing as a righteous anger, a burning passion that comes from deep within us. Think of Jesus when he enters the temple courts and see that what should have been a house of prayer had been turned into a marketplace. He does a little bit more than complain, right? He chucks over tables and he drives them out. He sees an injustice and he does something about it. So what has God burdened your heart with? Maybe it's something that we're already engaging in as a church. Maybe it's children or teenagers or homelessness or poverty or the elderly or families. Come and get involved. Because you know that there's always more that can be done. In Acts, the church was already feeding the widows. They were doing that work, but the need was greater than that that was being met. Or as Jesus said, the harvest is plentiful but the workers are few. Or perhaps you've noticed a need that isn't being met by the church. Is that there by accident? Or has God burdened your heart with something that he wants you to do something about? 
I don't know, something to chew over. And while you're chewing it over, come and have a chat, because maybe we can do something about it together. The A stands for abilities. So when the disciples told the church to find people to be in charge of the ministry, they didn't say find anybody. They asked for specific qualities. They say they must be full of the Spirit and they must be full of wisdom. Um, full of the Spirit means that they're following Jesus and that there's evidence of that in their lives, because that's what the Spirit does, helps us to live like Jesus. And wisdom means that they would have some idea of how to do the job that needed doing. They wouldn't have their heads in the cloud. They would be practically minded. They would actually know how to organise the food distribution. They would know how to keep records to make sure no one was missed. And while it's true that God gives us spiritual gifts and burdens our heart for certain people, he also uses our natural abilities and talents, right? Uh, later on, Peter uh, wrote that you should use whatever gift you've received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. What natural abilities do you have? Some people have a natural ability with words. Others can teach people. Some, uh, like me, are naturally athletic. Um, <laughs> some can play and sing an instrument or dance and do maths or fix things. I can't do any of those things either. Um, but, you know, I have other abilities. One of my abilities is that I can invent silly games that teenagers like to play. I don't know why that's an ability, but it is. I think I'm all right at teaching. You know, studies have shown that the average person possesses between 500 and 700 skills and abilities. So no one can say, I can't do anything. You can. Get creative. How, can, how might you use your talents and abilities to serve God? And the P stands for personality. All of us have a unique personality, right? Some of us love routine. Others can't stand doing the same things day to day. Some are driven by their emotions, not looking at anyone in particular. Others are more analytical. Some are introverted, some are extroverted, some are in the middle. Um, therefore, the way that we minister will look completely different. You know, for some of you, the thought of standing up on a stage on a Sunday morning with all these people staring back at you is utterly terrifying. But you're prepared to meet people through the week, one-on-one, -on -one and talk and have a coffee with them. And again, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 6, there are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God at work. When you're prepared to serve God, God will use you however that looks, whether it's up here or down there or out there or in a place where nobody sees you. And finally, the E, it stands for experience. We all have so much experience to call upon, right? We have family experiences, what we learned while we were growing up. Um, educational experience, what we've studied, what we know more about than anyone else, our vocational experience, the jobs that we've done, what we've learned about ourselves doing those jobs, our spiritual experience, how has God shaped our journey so far, and indeed our ministry experience, where have we served God in the past? Perhaps one of the most important ones is our um, painful experiences. You know, what problems have we faced? What trials have we been through that have perhaps left us with an understanding and a compassion for those who are going through the same things as us? Paul writes in his second letter to the Corinthians, Praise be to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. Our experience shapes our ministry. One of the reasons I'm so passionate about youth work was because I had such a good 
experience of being part of a youth group growing up. It was the period of my life where my faith grew the most because of the love and the dedication of people that were pouring into me as a teenager. And so I want young people to have that same experience. So that's our shape. But how does it inform our ministry? How does it affect the way that we choose to serve God? Well, some questions for us that you, know, you can think about today and maybe in your life groups as well through the week. What spiritual gifts have you been given? Or maybe you know, a, a better question to start with is, are we open to being used by God day to day? What's in our heart? What needs have we noticed? Are we going to be someone that complains about it? Or are we going to be somebody who seizes the opportunity to serve God in a new way? Or perhaps serve God again in the same way? What abilities do you have? How might you use that hidden talent of yours to serve God? What about your personality and your experience? How does that impact the way that you serve? Because here's the most interesting thing about that story in Acts 6. After the apostles had appointed the seven, to take care of that ministry, Luke records for us the result of that appointment. In verse 7, it says this. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Just think about that. Don't miss that. Because of the willingness of others to serve More people heard the gospel. Not only that, but those that were committing their life to Jesus increased rapidly. Not only that, but those who had previously been closed off to the gospel and even opposed to it came to see the power of Jesus to change lives. Wow. That's incredible. The result of a simple administrative task, those being willing to step up and say, yeah, we'll take care of this. We'll make sure those needs are met, led to all of this. And it's as true today as it was then. This church has grown and continues to grow because so many of you serve so faithfully. And the more of us who gives our lives in service to the kingdom, the further the gospel will spread, the more disciples we will see, and even those who were previously closed off to the gospel will see the power of God to transform lives. So I think that's worth pursuing. So I just want to encourage you this morning. If you're somebody who's already serving, already involved in a ministry at this church, thank you for that. You're doing an important work of the kingdom. You are making a difference. Even if perhaps you don't get to see that difference day to day, you are. And it is an essential part of what we are doing here. If you're not finding any way, particularly at the moment, to serve, I just want to encourage you to maybe think about your shape. What God has given you, the skills and abilities that you have, what maybe he's placed in your heart. Maybe some time ago he gave you a message and you've sort of forgotten about it and moved on with life because that's what happens in life. But maybe this morning it's just stirring it up for you again. And maybe, you know, it's not even necessarily that you're going to come and do a work here in the church or be involved in a ministry here in the week, but actually that you're going to be one of our missionaries in the world and that you're going to serve God where you are in a new way at work or at home, with family or out in the community. Because that's just as important. That's just as important as the works that we do here in the church. 
So thank you. Thank you for those that are serving, those that are giving their life to ministry. There are results. And for those that perhaps aren't or perhaps want to think about it, please do. Because there's so much more that we can be doing and so much more that can be done to reach these people who don't yet know about God's love for them. Let's just pray.